you know me, I am definitely one that likes budget-friendly things in I, everything. I, <laughs> I do know you. I've known you now for 27 years. That is true. And you know that I like budgets. So I decided to test out like this meal plan I found. It's on Tasty and also BuzzFeed, but it's like a week's worth of food. So seven days, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for $40. And I was like, there is no way. Like there is no way. And for it to all be good and not be like, here's ramen, here's beans and rice, and also here's a bean burrito. That no. sounds really good, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> I could fuck up a bean burrito right now. <laughs> but this list is amazing. I have learned so much in these recipes. Like, okay, so for example, I always get chicken breasts. That's what I do. I just, I eat white meat. It's my favorite. You know what is still white meat and way more flavorful? Chicken thighs. And they're cheaper. I mean, how many times have I been telling you this whenever I wa- used to watch? Bon Appetit videos, and they always use chicken thighs. They're more flavorful, they're juicier, they're just Th- apparently better. They're but, so I mean, good. I I still like white meat better, or light meat, as opposed to dark meat. No, I do too, but I made like a cauliflower rice bowl with roasted veggies and chicken and avocado and spinach, and I also today made tuna salad with Greek yogurt and put it on a tortilla. It was like a wrap. It was so good. Tomato sauce with gnocchi and spinach. Amazing. You guys, this was a $40 list of stuff from Trader Joe's. Yeah. And by tomato sauce, you meant tomato soup. Oh. You didn't just eat a big bowl of tomato <laughs> sauce. <laughs> just like, mm, right. just a jar of marinara. Just a jar of marinara with the spoons all you need. No. Oh. That sounds gross. Oh. Um, yes. It does. <laughs> tomato soup. Soup. Um... Yeah, and honestly, I feel at my peak, like, I've got my shit together. And it's completely a facade. It is a, like, crumbling glass facade my millennial self puts up against the, you know, decaying wreckage that is the earth right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I'm like, you know what? It's midnight. I should be in bed for right now. I'm going to make some overnight chia oats. And I, I feel like that successful bitch. I'm like, I have floor-to-ceiling windows. I smile a lot and don't look at the picture and Instagram photos and wear a lot of, like, white blouses. <laughs> and I'm eating my chia pudding that I made overnight. And I put raspberries in it because... <laughs> Buy a Casper mattress. You know, I, I just... I'm at, what, Fitstagram? <laughs> no, Finstagram, Healthstagram, whatever. I'm that in my mind when I put <laughs> chia seeds in milk and throw it in the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And it's almond milk because we all know what happens if I get within 10 feet of milk milk. <laughs> That's so true. Which I did make overnight oats this week. They were very good. I used coconut milk amazing so basically i've just had a really fun week of cooking on a budget and it hasn't been boring meals and so i'm gonna try making my own list next week like with still like the 40 50 budget for the whole week of food and see if i can do it it's my challenge we gotta get into one of my favorite parts of our episode and chit chat to y'all about our patreon and our patreon listeners patreon community 
I don't know, family. our listeners who are part of our Patreon. Patreon family. Why can I never remember that? I don't know. If you haven't gone over to our Patreon, you should. It's patreon.com slash Pod. There you can uh, select different levels of support. You get awesome different tier bonuses from shoutouts in the podcast. You get to direct your own episode. You might be getting a free tote, free shirt, something like that. Check out those tiers. You also get to listen to all of our different murder minis. And then you also get to read... Um, the most recent thing I wrote, which is a just the sassiest uh, drinks post I think I've ever written about, you know, some fun, uh, some fun wine drinks we're drinking this summer. Yes. And one with vodka. That one's not, not a wine. wine. <laughs> it's not a wine drink. <laughs> but if you're sitting there being like, wait, what is Karsk? And how can someone drink something that's literally half vodka, half coffee and not like die? Well, join Patreon, read the post and learn. And while you're at it, make sure you have subscribed to our podcast on whatever podcast listening platform you're using right now. Just click that subscribe button and you'll get notified of all our new episodes on Tuesdays. All right. So topic time. TT. Today. It's stupid. TT with tea. Oh my God. <laughs> In this episode, we're spilling the tea. And today that stands for topic. I don't know. It's a, <laughs> apparently a National Geographic news station. <laughs> the National Geographic tea. <laughs> You'll never guess what this cheetah was doing. <laughs> she was leaving her kids at home while she was hanging out with a lion. I don't think she doesn't lions <sighs> hang out. That's why it's scandalous. That's why it's the tea. <laughs> this antelope was caught on video shoplifting from Saks Fifth Avenue. Uh, no. <laughs> We're also not a nature podcast. <laughs> no. I don't think animals can understand the concept of murder. Although. Have you seen the way your cats look at you? I think they know. Skippy likes to lay on my chest. Um, and he'll extend his paw and just like lay his paw on my throat. While he's laying there. I'm pretty sure he's feeling around for like my carotid. Just, you know, <laughs> so he knows where it is. But yeah. I don't know. That picture you sent of the look he was giving you. It's it's the scariest thing ever. He's. Yeah, he scares me. It's, <laughs> I assume it's what, a, you know, some parents feel when they have like a teenager and they're like, I love my children. He scares me, though. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Um. What's our topic? <laughs> well, um, our topic is... Creepy um, teenagers? <laughs> uh, no, but put that one on the list. Um, so, like most of you who reside in the Northern Hemisphere, we're in summer. It's 50 trillion degrees outside. Sidewalks are melting. I, everything's awful. But, <laughs> um, normally, uh, we would be like, ah, oh, what a great time to, like, I'm gonna go to the beach... I don't know who can afford that. Obviously, we're not traveling because the virus. Maybe some of y'all live near the beach. Enjoy hurricane season. But, you know, summer, it's beach weather. What better time to do beach murders? Also, to all of our listeners in South Africa, South America, Australia, New Zealand. I'm sure we also have other listeners across, I don't know, Polynesia or wherever. But uh, y'all... I don't know, listen to this episode now and then pin it and re-listen to it in January when y'all are in the middle of summer, but also the holidays. 
But also, maybe you don't want to listen to it during the time when you're out at the beach. So there's that, too. I don't know. I think it's the kind of episode that you bring your portable speaker, you play it at the beach, (laughs) and you will probably not have to deal with people sitting right next to you. So I'm just saying. (laughs) You know what? Damn. That's, you have a point there, sir. Make sure to go with a friend who can put that SPF 50 on you because the strangers won't want to come near you because (laughs) you're listening to some real, real fucked up murder cases, at least in mine. And I assume yours is uh, not not great. When do we ever do like great murder cases? I don't really think that exists. Yeah, That's fair. All right. Well, Tyler, are you ready to get into the wine? Because I know I am. Yes, I I could definitely use a good bottle of wine right now. All right. Well, let me tell you about the wine I'm doing today. Today, I'm doing the 2019 Eccentric Cabernet Sauvignon from Argentina. And this is one that actually last week, isn't that pretty? Like it's got like a copper bottle with like a stamp that's an M for probably the wine. Oh, Mendoza, I bet. Because it's from Mendoza, not California, good lord, Argentina. But this is a wine that when I was at Total Wine with Mama last weekend, the one of the workers there was literally walking with us around the entire store and suggesting wines we should get. And this was an $8 bottle. And he was like, I know it's one of the cheaper ones, but this is one of the best cabs that we have. And I'm like, okay, you're going to say that. I have to try it. He's like, it's been very popular lately. A lot of people are getting it and really enjoying it. And I'd never seen it before. So it must be a newer one. So that's what I'm going to be trying today. And the winery that it comes from, they are pretty unique because they have llamas, unhurried. Oh, I thought that said unherded cows, but that's also what it means. But there's llamas, cows, uh, geese, all living among the vineyards. And that sounds a little animal farmy to me, but okay. <laughs> They're the ones that planted the grapes, Tyler. Where are the pigs? They're in the house. They don't do the work on the farm. The pigs ensure everything is in order. <laughs> but basically... This is communism. <laughs> <laughs> basically, um, so the animals really like the winemaker, and the winemaker can supposedly speak to the creatures. Literally, this is what it says in the back of this bottle. You can't make this shit up. Is the winemaker a Disney princess? (laughs) Well, as eccentric as he may be, he definitely rocks. So, obviously the winemaker wrote that on the back. I don't really know why, but (laughs) I felt like I had to share that story with you. So, when when I drink this wine, I'm going to think of sharing it with uh, geese. I'm I'm just wondering if, you know, he's, he's talking about how he speaks to the animals, if he's like, Oh, hey there, Madeline, like, laying eggs today. Or if he walks around, he's like, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> and the geese are like, totally. Yeah. That's, That's what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, honey. Uh-uh. Okay. So this cab in particular, it's a deep red color and it has aromas of blackberries and red fruit jam. So it's going to be fruit forward there um, on the nose. And then it's very full. It's a round wine with elegant velvety tannins, which I really enjoy, and long, a very long and delightful finish. So this sounds like a super solid cab, and I am really excited to taste it. It's yeah. 13%. 
Um, ABV, so it's actually a little bit lower than some of the cabs that I've had. I'm used to them being like 14%, but yeah, so I'm going to give this baby a try. I'm going to pop it open. It has a regular cork, and this cork in particular is uh, really in here. I mean, better than it being like, oh, this cork's really loose, (laughs) because we've had that wine once before when we had the wine we got from granddaddy's, and it was toxic. (laughs) It was. Okay, let's see if I can get this out. Beautiful. Ooh. Other thing is, the bottle, like, with the copper and the white, it, like perfectly matches my entire kitchen decor scheme it really does like this would look good just on your counter no i mean like obviously before you drank it but i don't know like that's the kind of bottle i would like put uh dried flowers or some bullshit in yeah i did that with the one i had that had the mooka piece on it because it was that art deco-y that i love but Mm -hmm. i'm going to i'm gonna let this breathe it smells like a cab So what wine did you pick for today's episode? So the wine I picked for today is one that most of y'all have seen. Maybe most of y'all have tried, or maybe a lot of y'all have been like, ooh, I see that one everywhere, which means I don't want to try it. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to try it for you. It it is the 2017 Cupcake Vineyards Cabernet Sauvignon from the Central Coast of California. Hey, we're both doing cabs! We're both doing calves. I'm doing cupcake again. Uh, last time, I've done cupcake on here once before. It was the cupcake red velvet, which is their blend. And it was one of our first 60 episodes? episodes ago. Yeah, it was. A no, little... it was. Yeah, it was, it was like in the 60s or early 70s, I think. Oh, oh, I thought it was like in the first 10. So I'm clearly wrong. You are very wrong. But um, yeah, so this is one I see all the time. And I was one of those people that was like, for me, if I see a wine everywhere, it kind of turns me off a little bit because I put it in the same group as like Barefoot or Yellowtail or different ones like that, which doesn't mean it's bad. It just means I'm a judgmental bitch. <laughs> so I am going to try it because like the Barefoot that I had whenever I did was not bad. Um, Yellowtail used to be one of my go-tos, actually. Uh, And this cupcake brand, the only ever cupcake wine I ever used to, like, drink often, one of my best friends, her favorite wine is Cupcake Moscato. Uh, It is bubbly, it is sweet, it is, like, 7% alcohol, so it's juice. Um, but we would drink that all the time. Again, I wasn't a big Moscato person, but it was her favorite wine, and it was like wine nights together, so yes. And it wasn't bad, it just, I had to not think about it as like, ah, this is wine, because then it's going to be disappointing. I just thought about it as like, this is a tasty, fruity, bubbly drink. Hey, whatever you have to do to get through it, but I get what you're saying. I've never had that one, but a lot of people really like Moscato. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not our tastes. It's just in the same way, I really don't like things like Dr. Pepper and stuff. It's it's too sweet. I, I'm not a sweet drinks person. So, Cupcake Cabernet Sauvignon. This is the 2017, which I was like, oh, kind of an older year. Because generally, the older a wine, the more expensive it is. So, I was expecting this to be like a 2019 or something like that. But, no. Um, 
This wine is described as coming from the sun-drenched vineyards of California, where the warm days slowly ripen our grapes to ensure bold, savory wine. Rich flavors of ripe blackberry, cherry, and plum lead to a lovely, juicy mouthfeel, balanced by soft notes of espresso and spice. Enjoy with a burger and truffle fries, or at a dinner party with all of your favorite people. Um. So, wait, question. Does that burger have bacon on it? Is it a bacon cheeseburger? I'm sure it is a bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> I just but had also, to make sure. I feel like that's, uh, I mean, I, I like the food pairing notes. I feel like that's very limiting. Like, oh, a burger and truffle fries. Like, that's a meal. That's a specific meal. <laughs> <laughs> but also, dinner party with all your favorite people, as long as you're having burger and fries with it. So, um, with that, I was like, well, let's see what the people have to say. One person, uh, the review I looked up, it's, he said that he ordered it because it was the only cab salve on the menu, and they were having a sirloin, so... While the wine didn't live up to the incredible steak, which... Where was he? Like, Chili's? I know. I'm like... <laughs> I mean, sirloin's great. I, I love steak, but um, I don't think I would ever just... I don't know. Maybe, again, Judgy Bitch is coming out, but whatever. He was at a place that only had this as a cab salve. <laughs> which is Maybe like... it was like a family restaurant? <laughs> it was Applebee's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listeners... American listeners, specifically, because I think Applebee's only here. I've never done the thing of, like, going to Applebee's to just get obliterated, because they have, like, $2 bottomless margaritas and shit. What's that like? I've never done Should that Should I either. do it? <laughs> I kind of want to, because one, budget, but two, yeah. But also, I just really don't want to embody that, like... I'm wearing a jean jacket. I'm going to Applebee's. I'm out. This is fun. It's also Christmas Day and I'm alone. Which <laughs> is instantly where my mind goes to about getting obliterated alone at Applebee's. <laughs> wow. So, <laughs> you know, dark places. But, um, anywho, if, if you've... Let us know what it's like because, I mean, even if the drinks are weak, if it's two bucks, okay. You're you're also obliterating your calorie count for the day, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. After like one of those, mm, yeah. But so who cares? Treat yourself. Anywho, back to the review. They also said this wine, while it didn't live up to this st- incredible steak, it was far from bad. My memoir, <laughs> Tyler Kelly, far from bad. Oh my god, no! My Netflix comedy special. That's yes, what it is. <laughs> that's the Netflix comedy special title. That is it. <laughs> um, okay. The wine, he described it as full-bodied with notes of cigar tobacco, which is specific, pepper, cherry, and cranberry. It's relatively well-balanced, a little bit acidic. All in all, it's a reasonable, if unexciting, Cabernet. Cheers. <laughs> it's not exciting. Enjoy. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, okay, I can I can go with that. And pretty much the reviews, the general consensus I got, because it, it had like four stars out of five. Yeah. Um, People were like, it's, yeah, you know, it's solid for a cheap wine. It's like a $10 bottle. There you go. Let's see. I feel like this might be the bottle that 
uh, people who start drinking wine and start enjoying it, but are like still new to it and like not getting wine from liquor stores and stuff. This might be what they graduate to from like a barefoot. Yeah, they go to cupcake. Um, but it's also it's a screw top. I mean, it smells like a solid cab. And with them talking about notes of like tobacco and espresso and stuff, I'm like, all right. Oh, it sounds good. It smells good. It doesn't smell super, super fruity, which is nice. Okay. Well, uh, I want to put this in my body. So cheers. Cheers. Oh. Hmm. Mine surprised hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, tell me about yours. Okay. It's a lot fruitier than I thought it would be. Very much like blackberry and blueberry right up front. Extremely smooth and velvety. I'm not getting any notes of, well, I'm looking at the back again and it didn't say anything about like oaky characteristics or smoke. It doesn't have any of that. So this is very much a fruit forward cab and it mentions red fruit jam. I totally get that. Um, it is making me salivate quite a bit. This ranges on a little bit too sweet of a cab for me. So it is lacking any of those smoke, leather, uh, dirt, oak characteristics that I really like in certain cabs that come more so from California. I'm trying to remember if I've had an Argentinian cab I think I have, but I'm used to getting my Malbecs from Argentina, so... Didn't I just do an Argentinian cab? Maybe. I, it it sounds like something we have done fairly I recently. I think that might have been what I drank last episode. I don't remember. My days, weeks are both blurring together and fracturing apart, so... For a fruit-forward cab... This is really good. It is very smooth and velvety. It has a great finish. For me, just a little bit sweeter. But yes, absolutely. If you are new to red wines or new to cabs or have been drinking mostly whites that are along that fruit end, um, definitely go for this one and give it a try. This would be a great red wine to introduce yourself to cab. So yeah, I recommend it. It, I can see why oh. this one's selling so well. It's not my particular taste buds, but yeah, this is a good bottle. Okay. Tell me about Cupcake. I haven't had that one in a long time. I mean, okay. Have any of y'all seen the Kombucha Girl meme? The, well, ugh. well, maybe. That's, that's, that's how I'm Kombucha Girl in this wine. <laughs> Do you um, mean the girl from TikTok? Yes. Yeah, I love her, by the way. She's hilarious. She's also the one that has the cactus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's fine. Mine's a little bit cold. Um, I've had better $10 cabs, but I don't know if I would say I've had better $10 cabs f that you could get at, like, a Walgreens or something. Yeah, Cupcake is definitely one of those that if you're in a wine pinch and you go to Walgreens, that's one of the better ones to grab. It's not my favorite cab. I will say, one of the things I often find in most uh, cheaper cabs is they're very heavy on the fruit flavors. You're not going to get a lot of the deeper flavors of things like 
tobacco or espresso. And this one has those. Okay. There's that at least, because mine does not. And it's exactly like you were talking about. It's one of those cheaper cabs that's mostly fruit forward. Yeah. I mean, you think of like um, the the cheaper end basic, like Behringer cabs or a Dark Horse that are pretty one note. Not necessarily bad, but not going to be very complex. This one's a little more so. Right. I would say I prefer the um, the Shaw brand at uh trader joe's the one that's like not the two buck chuck but the like organic one that's like a dollar more expensive i really like that one i think that one has a nice complexity to it um but trader joe's isn't everywhere and if you're looking for just a solid middle of the road cab that is gonna not be expensive but not gonna be so one note that you get tired of it this one is a really good option for that I think I would probably enjoy it more if I was eating something with it. Yeah. But um, again, I think it also needs to warm up just a little bit. It was in the fridge for like, you know, three hours. So that's a little long. <laughs> that's a little long, Tyler. My fridge takes a while to get cold. So, uh, but anyway, all right. We have our wines. We have our topic. And to, in today's episode, you're going first. So tell me about your beach murder. Mine is one that a lot of you guys have heard of, and you've either wondered why we haven't done it, or you understand why we haven't done it. And I only say that because it is, it's a much older case. We don't often do older cases, and it's extremely well known, which is also some we're not too uh, known for doing. We do pick obscure ones. And it's not Amelia Earhart. It's not, no, no. Okay, so the case that I'm doing is the Somerton Man, or it's also known as the Tamam Shud case. So the sources that I used, an article in Smithsonian Magazine by Mike Dash. There's a podcast that I I used to listen to religiously years ago. And I haven't listened to it in a while, but this case really reminded me of it. And so I tuned into a few of these episodes. And I just, I love this one. It's Astonishing Legends. And the hosts are Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. And these guys go so deep into their episodes. They're always like a couple hours long. And for example, when they covered Tamam Should, the Somerton Man mystery, it was in episodes 33, 34, 35, and 36. Oh. So if you really want to get down to the nitty gritty details and every single theory that's out there, I highly recommend listening to their episode. It was so good and one of my favorites that they they did. So I used that for this as well. See, I first heard of this case um, in an episode of BuzzFeed Unsolved that Shane and Ryan did. Oh, yeah. That's where I first heard it. So if you're wanting not to commit what sounds like 8 to 16 (laughs) hours of time to the case, I mean, one, just continue listening. You're already most of the way here. Uh, But also, BuzzFeed Unsolved is like 25 minutes. No, that's perfect. And then I also found an article from All That's Interesting by Gisli Ruiz. So in December 1948, there was a body of an unidentified man found dead on Somerton Beach, which is south of Adelaide, Australia. 72 years later, this man's identity is still completely a mystery. This case, which in theory 
is technically still open and they're doing an ongoing investigation, there's still so many questions. There's no real idea of what even killed this man. And a lot of the people cannot be certain whether his death was a murder or a suicide. And we don't know who he is. So these are literally some of the biggest questions that you have in a case in general. And we don't know any of them. And that's my case. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Just kidding. There's <laughs> it was Amelia Earhart. <laughs> so she did it. The mysteries in this case have made it one of the most perplexing cold cases in the entire world. There's a reason this case is so well known. And it fascinates me. It's crazy. It's eerie. Literally, you could spend hours and hours of your life talking about this. I won't spend hours and hours. You're welcome. So consider this the Cliff Notes version. Uh (laughs) Okay. So November 30th at about seven o'clock at night, um, John Lyons and his wife, they decided to go for a stroll on Somerton Beach. This is a seaside resort that's just a few miles south of Adelaide. And as they were walking, they noticed this man just kind of slumped in the sand. He was propped up against the seawall and he was dressed in a really nice suit. And he's about like 20 yards ahead of them. His legs are stretched out, feet crossed. And as they're, you know, walking and they see this guy, they see him extend his right arm up and then it fell back to the ground. So... John thought he might be making a drunken attempt to smoke a cigarette. So it just looks like this drunk dude that's like passed out on the beach trying to have a smoke. And they're like, okay, whatever. About mm. about 30 minutes after this, another couple walks by and they notice this same man lying in the same position. And they were actually looking at him from above. And the woman could see that he was dressed really, really well. He had shoes that were polished, like still shining, like freshly done which was really weird for him to be wearing on the beach and he wasn't moving he his left arm was just like kind of splayed out in the sand and he just looked like he was sleeping and the couple just decided whatever he's asleep it was the next morning that everyone realized this man was dead john lyons so one of the first guys that saw him he returned from a morning swim and he saw like all these people standing around where he had seen that drunk guy the night before he walks over And he sees this man sitting in relatively the same position with his head resting on the seawall and feet crossed. But at this point, he is very clearly dead. His body is cold. There were no marks that showed any signs of violence. There was a half-smoked cigarette laying on his collar as if maybe it fell out of his mouth. As the mystery unfolds, it's determined that his time of death was no earlier than 2 a.m., And it was noted that his likely cause of death was heart failure, and they suspected poisoning. So as the police, you know, they got there, they took him um, to the morgue, they emptied his pockets, and they spread it out on the table to see what all he had. There were tickets from Adelaide to the beach, a pack of chewing gum, some matches, a couple of combs, and a pack of Army Club cigarettes, which had seven cigarettes of another more expensive brand called Kensitas. So it's like cheap carton, expensive cigarettes. Okay. But there was not a wallet. He had no cash on him, no ID. And one of the really weird features is that none of his clothes had any tags. Like all the tags had been cut out. 
So you don't even know what brand of clothes he has. They're gone. The autopsy results also didn't provide very much information, just more questions. The corpse's pupils were smaller than normal and seemed to be a little bit unusual. His spleen was three times the normal size. And there was blood in his stomach. So this is what was pointing towards a potential poisoning. There was like a little bit of food left and some blood. So for some science reasons and whatnot, they didn't feel like the poison came from the food. So they didn't really know what it, oh. what it was from. Maybe it was in a cigarette. Like, maybe it was something else. Like, they didn't know. So now, when you think back to the first sighting, when, like, his arm raises up and he's seeming like he's drunk, well, instead of him seeming like he's drunk, this could be the moments when he was dying because he had been poisoned. However, they did repeated tests on his blood and his organs, and an expert chemist didn't find anything any traces of poison. There was absolutely none found in his system. Well, and this is in like the 50s, right? 48. 48. I mean, there are so many poisons that like, oh, once ingested, like your body breaks it down into potassium or whatever. So, you know, testing for poison is not even that easy today for some of these specific ones. And I imagine in the 40s, I mean, I don't know. Shit, if it's 1948, what if it was, like, radiation? Yeah, like, they, you know, World War II, Manhattan Project had happened, but would a hospital outside of Adelaide know what to look for for radiation poisoning or something like that? It's a good question. And that they were having similar thoughts. They were like, well, this must be one of those rare poisons that decomposes very early after death and leaves no trace. Oh, huh. I should be an investigator. A couple of the ones they were looking at were digitalis or strophanathin. Sorry if I said those wrong, but strophan- digitalis. Yeah, digitalis. That sounds like a video game boss. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the um, strophanathin. It was a rare glycoside that was derived from the seed, the seeds of some rare African plants. Historically, these this poison was used by a little-known Somali tribe in their poison arrows. Party. Fingerprints were also taken from this man, and they were shared all over Australia and all over the English-speaking world, but they were never identified. And anyone who came to visit the body, you know, maybe they had a missing relative or friend or they thought maybe they knew who it was. They came and saw him. No one identified him. So investigators widened their search and what they were looking for. They decided to look and see if there was any abandoned personal possessions. Like, remember, this guy had train tickets in his pocket, so he came from somewhere. So maybe luggage was left behind. And they thought, hey, he seems like he's come from out of state. Let's see if we can find his luggage and maybe that'll give us more information. So Mm -hmm. this meant that they had to check Every single hotel, all the dry cleaners, lost property offices, railway stations, for miles around. But they did find a back. On January 12th, detectives sent to the main railway station in Adelaide were shown a brown suitcase that had been deposited in a cloakroom on November 30th. So that's like 
the night before he died. The case didn't have any stickers or markings on the outside of it. The label had been torn off. Tags were missing from all but three of the clothes inside the suitcase. So again, all those labels cut out. But the ones that still had a label, they had the name Keen or T. Keen. But they couldn't trace anyone by that name. So this is back in the day when you would like write your name in your clothes. So the police concluded that someone... (laughs) Sorry, you're... Are you going to lose them? (laughs) I mean, how many times is someone like, I found this pair of pants. Uh, It's Keynes, obviously. (laughs) These aren't mine. Like, no. What? Why would you write that? Sorry, that just to me follows the same logic as people who like write Monday in their underwear. Like, I don't know. Why? I don't think people... Should I start writing my name in my clothes? (laughs) No. I don't think people write the days of the week in their underwear. I think they buy day of the week underwear. Um, which... Just wash your fucking clothes. (laughs) Like... Anyway, it's not that uncommon that people would write their names in their clothes. But... Yeah, but he's not like a four-year-old going to kindergarten. (laughs) Who's like gonna lose his raincoat. (laughs) I I don't understand the 40s. Police concluded that someone purposefully left the tags on these clothes, knowing that the dead man, the dead man's name was not either of these names. He he was not Keen. The other contents in the suitcase also didn't lead anywhere. There was, I I think there was like a thing of thread in the same color that a hole had been mended in his suit or something. So like they knew it was his suitcase, but the contents didn't tell him anything. It was at this point in time, the police were like, okay, we need to bring in another expert. We need some help. So that's when John Cleland, who was an emeritus professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, he came to re-examine the corpse and the dead man's possessions. So in April, four months after the discovery of the body on the beach, Cleland's search produced a final piece of new evidence. And this was one that would prove to just be even more baffling than anything else they'd found. It was just another one of those things added to the list of what the fuck is going on in this case. Cleland discovered a small pocket sewn into the waistband of the dead man's trousers. Previous examiners had missed this. And you hear it referred to as like this secret pocket, but it really looked like it was meant to hold um, a fob watch. So like one of those pocket watches. Oh, okay. Inside this pocket, tightly rolled, was a tiny scrap of paper. They opened it up, and it had two words that were typeset in a very elaborate printed script, like a really fancy font. And the phrase read, Tamam Shud. Frank Kennedy, who was the police reporter for the Adelaide Advisor, he recognized these words as Persian. And he telephoned the police to suggest that they obtain a copy of a book of poetry, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. This work, which was written in the 20th century, it started to gain popularity in Australia during the war years. And in fact, these were the last two words in the English translations, and they translated to, it is ended. So, Tamam Shud means, it is ended. Oh, so it's literally just like, the end. Yes. When you take that 
at face value that he had that in his pocket, it makes it look like the death may be a case of suicide. Like, maybe he ripped that out of the book, put it in his pocket, and was like, it's done. The end. I killed myself. I mean, I feel like, though, in that case, it, it wouldn't have, like, hid it in his secret pocket. <laughs> I know. It, he would just, like, I don't know, maybe just pin it to his shirt. Or maybe just wear it in, like, his breast pocket, because he's wearing a nice suit. Like, I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't think suicide. It's too bizarre to think suicide. This whole case. Yeah. So it's, it's at this point, okay, it's been four months, and his body is decaying. I guess he's just, like, Ew. hanging out at the morgue. And so arrangements were made for a burial, but um, the police knew that they were disposing of one of the few pieces of evidence they actually had, his body. So they had it embalmed four months later. So gross. And um, they also had a cast taken of his head and his upper torso. So after that, the body was buried and still sealed under concrete in a plot of dry ground that they picked specifically just in case they needed to re-exhume him. The I guess next not. Night, I guess he not. Was walking on the beach. <laughs> I guess not re-exhume. It would be exhume one time. Yeah. It'd be re-exhume if you did it again. One of the things investigators were trying to track down was the same version of the Rubaiyat that had this missing page. Not necessarily the copy that had the page torn out, although they would like to have that one too, but just seeing if they could find any print of the Rubaiyat that used that same font, that like very scripty, beautiful font. And they couldn't find it anywhere. And then eight months later, in July... So eight months after they found his body in July, a man walked into the detective's office in Adelaide with a copy of the book and a really weird story. So the previous December, just after the discovery of the unknown body, he went for a drive with his brother-in-law in a car that he kept parked a few hundred yards from Somerton Beach. The brother-in-law found a copy of the Rubaiyat lying on the floor in the rear seats of the car. And both of the men, like, when they saw the book, they thought it was the others, and so they just shoved it in the glove box and never thought about it. They didn't, like, talk about it? There wasn't like, oh, I found your book back here, and the other's like, yep, you found your book back there. Like, what? No, I guess one of them just put it in the glove box, and that was that. How big is their glove box? I can't put a book in mine. Okay, this book doesn't necessarily mean it. It's not big. It's not like I'm saying he put a textbook in there. <laughs> I mean, I okay, that's fair. No, you're right. I guess when I picture this book, because of the, like, scripty font, because it's this, like, oh, Persian book of poetry, I'm picturing it to be this, like, big-ass hardcover book, but it totally could just be, like, a book. Yeah, if it's fitting in their glove compartment, it's not a big book. <laughs> like, if they're stowing it in there with whatever else you have in your glove compartment. Um. Anyway, so again, the book's in the glove compartment, they don't think about it. Until they read a newspaper article about the search, that the police were searching for a copy of the Rubaiyat, and the two brothers went back into the car to take a closer look. So they were like, oh yeah, we have that copy in our car. So apparently this is the moment when they have the conversation about your book, my book. Oh, that's neither of our books. Fuck, let's go to the police. Oh, don't you have a copy of that book? No, but you do. 
No. <laughs> I thought it was yours. <laughs> and <laughs> I like how you're just turning this case into like a TV show from the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think one of the most confusing pieces of this case is it's like someone wrote an Agatha Christie fan fiction, like, oh, I'm going to try to write a book like hers. But they're not a good writer. And also they kept being like putting it away for a year and then coming back to write. So none of it really makes sense. There's like <laughs> zero narrative. There's all these plot points that like, oh, let's introduce this. And it goes nowhere. But it's real life. And so it's just so confusing. And I am confusion. <laughs> um, I think it's going to remain that way. So they go back, they get the book out of the glove box, and they take a closer look at it. And as it turns out, it is the copy that is missing the part of the final page that has been torn out. It is the copy that that little scrap of paper came from. How did it get in their car? (laughs) Another big mystery. So inside the book, there was a telephone number penciled in the rear cover. And using a magnifying glass, because apparently it was written really fucking small. (laughs) (laughs) Damn. The police were able to see a faint impression of some other letters. They were written in capitals underneath, and this was like their first solid clue. Matching this book to the piece of paper found in the dude's pocket. So they called the number. They're like, obviously there's a number in this book. We're going to call it. And it was a young nurse who lived nearby Somerton Beach. But like these two men that found the book, Her identity has never been publicly released. We don't know who she is. Amelia Earhart. She's now known by her nickname, which is Justin. Reluctantly, um, because, you know, it seemed like maybe she was living with a man uh, who she was, it was either her husband or about to be her husband. She admitted that she had indeed presented a copy of the Rubaiyat to a man she had known during the war. She gave the detectives his name, Alfred Boxall. So everyone is like, oh my god, we did it. We figured out who this man is. It's Alfred. Yes! Except there was one problem. Alfred wasn't dead. Alfred turned out to still be alive, and he had the copy of the Rubaiyat that Justin had given him. It also bore an inscription from her, but the book was completely intact. The scrap of paper hidden in the dead man's pocket didn't come from the book she gave that guy. You know, it came from this other one. But why is her phone number in this book? It's it's very confusing, I know. What if Alfred died in the war and one of, you know, one of his, like, military buddies stole his identity? 100%. And the dude with the book mm-hmm. is the... But Alfred didn't die in the war. He died on a beach. No. I don't know. But they went to Alfred and he had a copy of the Rubaiyat that's different than the one that was found in the car. But it... But both books had Justin's information in it. I mean, what if it's a case of, like, Alfred thought he lost it and was like, fuck, I I can't let her know I lost this book she got me. And so he bought a new one, I don't know, wrote her phone number in it, and then found the other one. I mean, I don't know. What? If, but what if it's just some really boring answer like that? <laughs> I mean, I guess anything's possible. So the police still wanted to ask Justin a lot of questions, because there's a lot of questions around, like, 
Why is her phone number in this book? Why is she involved at all in this case? And so they brought her down to the station and they showed her the bust of the Somerton man. When she saw it, she was very visibly shaken. She clearly recognized him. She looked like she was about to faint. But she said, nope, I've never seen him. Nope, I have no idea who that is. I've never seen him. And walked out of the room. Basically one of those where it's like, you're lying. Yeah, but this is also the bust they took four months into him decomposing. So she could have just been like, oh my god, that's fucking horrifying looking. His eyes fallen out. (laughs) No. His cheekbones exposed. He's rotted when you took this bust. Tyler, it's not a photo. They took like a plaster, uh, um, they made a bust of him. Oh, oh, I was thinking they, like, dipped him in plaster, like, the top of him, and then, like, I don't know, filled it with something, so it's showing every detail no, I'm sure, of him, like, decomping. I'm sure they did, but I don't think it, you're not gonna see his eye hanging out. They would have, like, shoved it back in before they dipped him in the plaster. Okay, but it's still four months into decomp. I'm pretty sure if you showed me a bust of someone who's been dead for four months and they've been decomping, I would probably be like, oh my god. But, and the police like, obviously you know him, you <laughs> fucking liar. And I'd be like, no, you just showed me a dead rotting person's bust. It's not like it's like a Halloween zombie decoration. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, exactly, it's real. That's what I'm makes just it saying. horrifying. <laughs> Four months after you've died and just been decomposing in a morgue to the point where it was, like, made a point of, like, oh, shit, we should have done this sooner. Yeah, that bust is going to freak anyone out. I don't know. Maybe she did recognize it. Maybe she's like, Terry, Mm, uh uh-uh, I'm not getting involved in this shit. I don't know him. But I think it very likely could have been like, oh, my God, a dead person. I'm just saying. (laughs) No, again. There, there's legs to that. So, Justin said she didn't recognize him. So, at this point, they had one more clue that they could see where it led. And this was the faint impression of these other letters that they found in the Rubaiyat. So, when they examined it under an ultraviolet light, five lines of jumbled letters could be seen, the second of which had been crossed out. The first three were separated from the last two by a pair of straight lines with an X written over them. And it looked like it was some sort of code because it was just these random letters. So breaking a code from a very small fragment of the text is really, really difficult to do. But the, yeah. but the police did their best and they sent the message to Naval Intelligence, which had some of the finest cipher experts in Australia. And... They actually also allowed the code to be published in the press. Of course, this had a lot of amateur, like, cipher breakers, (laughs) cipher experts, looking at the code, trying to figure it out. But no matter what anyone tried, the experts, the laymen, this code was never deciphered, and it was determined to be unbreakable. Again, what if it was just like, he was doing the crossword puzzle and was like, oh, shit, where's I need a piece of paper to write thing? Okay, here. And it doesn't mean anything. I mean, shit, I do that. If I disappeared and people were like, well, we have these post-its as evidence, they're code. It's like, 
No. No, that's just me writing rando shit down and also a lot of equations with, like, what someone's hourly wage is going to be. Like, <laughs> it don't mean anything, but it probably looks like it does. Uh, it could simply be a grocery list. Like, what if for some reason he writes his grocery list with only using the first letter of each item he needs to get? It'd be weird, but hey, people have their own type of list making. Yeah, well, and it sounds like, what if he's just a dude with some, like, pretty normal eccentricities, maybe? Maybe he, like, has OCD or something, so that's why he cuts all the tags out of his clothing, because I don't know, he doesn't like the look, or he doesn't like them rubbing against him. And he also writes his list, he's like, apples, so he knows that just an A means apple. And what, I don't know. I know. Exactly. That is what is so mysterious about this case is it's like, do these random things mean anything? Or are we just so desperate to find some type of information that we think everything means something? Agatha Christie fan fiction. That's what I'm saying. So in 1958, when the South Australia coroner published his final results of the investigation, his report concluded the admission, and this was 10 years later, I'm unable to say who the deceased was, I am unable to say how he died, or what was the cause of death. So basically, this poor coroner spent 10 years and literally couldn't answer any of the basic questions that a coroner is meant to answer. So in the recent years, however, the Tamam Shud case has begun to attract some new attention. There's obviously the amateur sleuths that have been probing around the loose ends left by the police, And there's two very persistent investigators that are still on the case. Retired Australian policeman Gary Feltus and Professor Derek Abbott of the University of Adelaide. And they've made a few strides. They believe that Justin knew the man from the war and that maybe she provided, like, providing copies of the Rubaiyat was one of the things she gave her boyfriends. So that could be a reason as to why the Somerton man and why Alfred had copies from her. Maybe it's just like oh. one of the things she gave. Like it was important to her she got, and she shared it in her to her significant others. She got many dudes. Yeah. Good for her. Yes. So they, again, like Justin's identity had never been announced to the public, but they were able to trace who she was and they discovered that she had a son. And after looking at the surviving photos of the unknown man and Justin's child, it revealed a lot of similarities. So they were thinking, yo, this dead guy, this may have been the father of the son. That may be why she was so like, oh my God, it's so-and-so, but she didn't want to say who it was. That's pretty fucked up though. Like, I mean, again, it's the 40s though, so I don't know how much of like a fucking scarlet letter it would have been on her if she's like, oh yeah, that's this dude I was hooking up with out of wedlock. So, I mean, maybe the consequence that could have faced her and her son were more important than identifying this man, but I don't know. It's kind of fucked up. It is. And also because of, like, the weird way this man died, to some theorists, it suggests that the unknown man was possibly a spy. Alfred Boxall had worked in intelligence during the war. And the unknown man died, after all, at the onset of the Cold War. 
This was at the time when the British rocket testing facility at Woomera, which is a few hundred miles from Adelaide, was one of the most secret bases in the world. And this is when it was even suggested that he was poisoned, um, like the administration of the poison was through his cigarettes and the tobacco. Maybe this is why he had the expensive cigarettes in the cheap box. I mean, that's still like a really weird thing. So adding to this spy theory, there was never a duplicate copy of the Rubaiyat found. So even the copy that Boxall had, it wasn't the same print. It was like, it didn't have that same pretty font. So it's like this copy that the Somerton man had, the piece of paper from that ended up being in that dude's car. It was the only one in existence. So maybe it was actually a piece of spy equipment, like a one-time use code pad. There was another guy, and I didn't write his name down. I'm sorry, listeners, if you know this case, you probably know who he is. But there was another guy who was found um, dead with a, a copy of a book that was another book of poetry. And yet it was also the same non-existent print. Like, it could never be traced. It was a one of a kind. So maybe it was spy equipment. That would make sense. I mean, there's those, like, radio stations, the number stations that are still going on today that are code for spies and stuff. So maybe. Um, But if they know um, Justin's son's name, like, if they know his identity and stuff, I wonder if they've been like, yo, dude, do you want a DNA test and, like, possibly solve this case or possibly like x solve your family's connection if there is no dna like well i don't know if he's still alive so that's a really good question and when i get into this next part we can revisit that so the very last piece of this case comes from a witness statement that was never looked into further which these kill me because they're out there all the time all the time So this statement was given in 1959, so 11 years after the body was found. It was by a guy who had been on Somerton Beach. There, on the night that the Somerton man died, and as he was walking, you know, in the general area of where the body was eventually found, the witness says he saw a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge, but he couldn't describe the man that was doing the carrying or being carried. Poseidon? (laughs) Not coming out of the water. (laughs) I mean, that's just what I'm picturing is, you know, (laughs) Greek God being like, I got you, dude. Oh, shit. No, I don't. (laughs) It's just someone like kind of someone slumped over your shoulder. It looks like a guy helping his drunk friend, which is why this guy never came forward, because it doesn't seem like anything out of the ordinary. But then at a certain point, he was like, you know what? I should go tell the cops apparently 11 years later and the cops how would you even remember it that long i know well because it eats at you because you know you should share it that's how you remember that kind of stuff otherwise no who would remember that i don't know anything that happened 11 years ago i don't know anything that happened 11 minutes ago okay (laughs) (laughs) we were probably recording a podcast (laughs) um so obviously it's could this have been the unidentified man that had just been killed. Did this eyewitness happen to see some type of spy murder? What or or was it just literally some drunk guy that was helping his friend? Or a drunk guy being or, helped by his friend? Or was it Poseidon? <laughs> Which again, <laughs> in this case, 
I'm going to say it's a theory. <laughs> it's a theory. Let's put it in there. So this investigation has also been picked up by Justin's daughter. She believes that the Somerton man is her grandfather and that he and her mother were involved in a Soviet spy ring. Justin's daughter has requested that the Somerton man be exhumed and re-examined, but until then, we can only speculate. And so, I don't know how long DNA can live in, in like, a body that's dead and be analyzed. I don't, I don't know enough of DNA science to know if that would be valid, but if it is, I mean, I bet she'll try. Yeah, if it's been, if he was embalmed... I would imagine enough DNA would survive for them to be able to, like, dig them up and test. I mean, it's been 72 years, and right now, or at least when, when that was printed, she's waiting on the answer to see if he can be exhumed. And that is the, believe it or not, Cliff Notes version of the Somerton Man. Wow. Okay, shit. I swear to you, it's That's, one it's of... It's just so confusing. It's so confusing. It's so bizarre. I really love your description of Agatha Christie fan fiction because that is the perfect description of how weird this case is. These things don't go together and the potential answers are things like, what, he's a fucking spy? Are you kidding me? Is this spy kids? What is this crap? Right? But then again... People are spies. I know. The Cold War, like, especially in Australia, which is the Western front, the Western world's, like, stronghold close to South Asia, which is experiencing influence from the Soviets and um, the, I don't think the Chinese Revolution had happened at that point. No, it hadn't. But still, like, South Asia is being influenced heavily by both former European colonialists, so, like, France and whoever else was there, Portugal, but then also by the Soviets. So having Australia as a base, also it literally being, like, the stronghold country for the Pacific Theater. Like, yeah. Well, I but I honestly think the spy theory holds a lot of possibility i mean i don't know a lot about spies because they're spies you're not supposed That's to know a lot about point. it exactly it's kind of the point but it seems like no that could absolutely be legit in more than a really you're saying it's spies way yeah but, but at the same time me, spy it, stuff is so boring no 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 that's not what i was gonna say what i was gonna say oh. is if you're a spy murdering another spy why are you going to leave his body on the beach? There are so many ways. The ocean you... is right there. Yeah, there are so many ways to completely dispose of the body. And you're a spy. I feel like you have connections that you need to make that happen. And um, you have a you can go to a hardware store and get a shovel. And you don't even need connections for that. <laughs> well, and literally, <laughs> you just need a credit card. Literally, I mean, you've got like your freaking self-taught criminals who are just like dissolving people in acid. Like there are ways to get rid of bodies. You don't have to like laid on the beach and tied together this entire fucking mystery but i mean but obviously it worked <laughs> that is if true. it was a murder we don't know who or what or anything about it so you know maybe all of that shit if it was spy murder he's like you bitches think i didn't think things through who am i 
Who the fuck am I? You don't know. That's right. This bitch wins. You know what the spy is saying today? Nothing, because he's probably dead. And that's one thing about this case is (laughs) 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 it's so old. (laughs) Like, once you get to a certain point, it's almost like you have to accept that it's never going to be solved. And that's the case for Elizabeth Short, Black Dahlia. There are people who we're pretty sure we know who that was, but that we can't prove it because it's been so long. Um, Well, and even if um, the murderer was discovered today and was still alive and just real fucking old, (laughs) you know, we, we get him out of that nursing home. I mean, I don't necessarily know the Australian legal system. I think the statute of limitations for murder is either up or soon to be. Speaking of really old people going to jail right before they probably die, uh, Golden State Killer was sentenced to life in prison today with no possibility of parole, which means he's probably going to die in like a week. Have you seen probably. that fucking man? He is falling apart. I mean, it, I mean, it's just it's frustrating that he got to live so much of his life free when he should have been behind bars that whole time yeah but what justice can be served is being served and i do i appreciate that absolutely i'm glad that we know who he is but that was a random segue of something that happened in the news today you know who else we know who they are but we're still waiting on justice are the murderers of brianna taylor yep it is what is today's date it is august 21st 2020 and they still have not been arrested Yep, but uh, Jonathan Mattingly, Brett Harkinson, and Miles Cosgrove, we know who the fuck you are. Those are the men who murdered her. So, still waiting on justice there. Yes, we are. And uh, we will not shut the fuck up until justice is served. Yep. So with that, that is the case of the Summerton Man. Tyler, tell me about your beach murder. You know, it's interesting because... um, We both chose beach murders, you know, with the topic being like, it's currently summer beach time. And then we both chose beach murders that happened in the Southern Hemisphere during the Australian summer, uh, because I am doing the Wanda Beach murders. I didn't realize that one was in Australia as well. Yep. (laughs) So this episode is really just Australian beach murders. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There are a couple in the United States that I found that I want to do, but I want more information before I do them. Yeah. Yeah. So. So the sources I used for the Wanda Beach murders, I used the Wikipedia page for Wanda Beach murders. I used an article in the Ilawada Mercury newspaper. Probably butchered that. It's probably like the Ilawada Mercury newspaper. I don't know. I probably butchered that again. <laughs> but uh, I couldn't find who wrote the article. So staff. And then this blog post that was amazing from the Unsolved Casebook blog. They have a ton of different murders that they go into a ton of detail. And so if you like reading true crime blogs... Highly, highly suggest checking out the Unsolved Case book. I think I've read that one. It is pretty good. So, Marianne Schmidt, she and her family moved to Melbourne from West Germany in September of 1958. My case is also old. Yes, it is. Australian. Wow, Australian beaches. Scary! Yeah. I mean, 
mostly scary because like box jellies but oh i'm sorry i do remember talking about me being scared of jellyfish and you were like i don't know they're just like jellyfish whatever yeah we live in the states where jellyfish is like oh that hurts but like whatever it's like being scared of bees where it's like i mean i get it but just don't be you know that's how you conquer your fears so it's just like stop Ugh. and you're like you know what your sardonic attitude has changed me uh no but in australia box jellies kill you in four minutes if you get stung also you're gonna step on like a fucking rockfish it's gonna sting you you're gonna die <laughs> as you like waddle your way in pain towards the shore you're gonna get eaten by like i don't know a 50 foot tall spider that's just there and people are like <laughs> that's timothy the spider everyone knows him you just you know how australian people sound yeah you just have to stay 50 feet away from him and he won't bother you He's a gentle yeah. giant until you get into his territory. Man, Australia. How do y'all... Y'all's animals are fucking weird. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I know. I understand that, like, well, it's an island that got separated millions of years ago, so everything's evolved on it, and it's, like, this enclosed space. So, yeah, you're gonna have damn wallabies and kangaroos and koalas and murder jellyfish and all that shit. And sure... But they weird. Do you think... Actually, question for Australian listeners. Are y'all also weirded the fuck out by, like, American animals? Are you like, yeah, you're saying that and all, which is cool. You have fucking alligators. And we're like, mm, touche. I know, and our Florida listeners are like, don't. That's my Timothy. The alligator that lives in the swamp in the backyard. Yeah, um, I... I... No. I know there are alligators also in Texas. I don't think they make it as far west as Austin. Uh, but it's one of the reasons my ass ain't moving any farther east than I already am. Alligators scared the shit out of me. I mean, this And is, I feel like rightfully so. This is why I swim in pools. Pools and I go no more than waist deep in the ocean. I know I may sit here looking like this little wimp, but I don't care. I'm not getting eaten by something in the ocean or the lake or the pond or um, the you river. Know what's, you know what's scarier than uh, any sea creature? Rip currents. When uh, me and my friend, we went to Florida. Oh my God, was it only a year ago? Oh, that's weird. Yeah, it was just a year ago. And we're out like, uh, we're in the waves. Like, let's go out a little further. And thank God I'm about six inches taller than her. Because then we started getting pulled out. And I had to do the thing where I stood behind her as we're like, get, you know, facing the beach trying to get back. And literally lifting her and pressing her forward and then digging my feet into the sand so we didn't like get pulled back out too far. It took like 20 minutes for us to get back to shore. And then once we did, we were like, we're fucking drinking. That was terrifying. It was also like our first morning at the beach. It was a lot. Rip currents are no joke. Swim parallel if you're caught in one. Or just pick your friends up and place them ahead of you. You do not fuck with the ocean. I'm saying it's it, there's a reason we've only been able to explore 5% of it. You don't want to know what's in the other 95%. That's one of the scariest you facts to me. You saw what Poseidon did in your case. I know. That was Poseidon <laughs> pulling you into the ocean. I know. He's like, come on, boy. And I'm like, oh, I, I gotta go. I'm, I'm meeting my friend. I, I gotta go. Sorry, Poseidon. Like, next time. Yeah, tomorrow. Like, I'll, I'll totally text you back. Like, I promise. I'll text you tomorrow. Okay. Thank, thanks, Sai. Oh my Cy. god, I ghosted Poseidon. 
Anywho, Wanda Beach. So, Marianne Schmidt, her and her family, they moved to Australia in 58 from West Germany. And her family consisted of her parents, Helmut and Elizabeth, and her siblings, Helmut Jr., Hans, Peter, Trixie, and Wolfgang. Another of her siblings, Norbert, uh, was born the following year, but he was born there in Australia. So, after they got to Australia, the Schmidt family, they lived in this, like, migrant hospital in Unendera, New South Wales, before they moved to the town of Tamora. In 1968, so just about, like, five years after they moved there, um, moved to Australia, Helmut Schmidt moved the family to Sydney after he was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. Which, is Hodgkin's disease Hodgkin's lymphoma? It's the same thing? Probably. That would be really annoying if Hodgkin's disease and Hodgkin's lymphoma were different, but... I think they're the same thing. They better be. Watch out, Hodgkin. Um, but the family moved to Sydney, um, and the next year he passed away. So they lived in the town of West Ride, which is a suburb of Sydney, and their next-door neighbor was a girl named Christine Sherrick. She lived with her grandparents, Jim and Jeanette Taig. And when the Schmidt family moved in next door, she developed a really strong friendship with Marianne, because they were the same age. At this point, I think they're like 13, 14, something like that. Oh! So they're like, oh shit, neighbor's the same age? Fuck yeah, I got a new best friend. You know, the way the 13-year-olds think in the 50s. Yeah! <laughs> I bet 13-year-olds in the 50s were thinking, fuck yeah. They would never say it, though. They were thinking it. They're like, good golly gosh, I got a new friend here. You're also from Minnesota. I was about to say, are they from Minnesota? Because they're not. They're from Germany. Well, one of them is. The other is Australian. You know, listen, my accent catalog is like under, you know, reconstruction right now. So deal with what you get. It's being cleaned out. So some of them are like out of order at the moment. You know, it's it's kind of like doing that thing where for 300 years you've hit like, oh, I'll restart my and update computer tomorrow. And it's just going through that now. So it did the thing where it's like, you know what? I'm restarting in the next 30 minutes. Save your shit. <laughs> I hate my computer does that. When I'm like, oh, my God. Okay. At least it gives you time. Yeah. It gives me 10 minutes. It'll just pop up with a countdown like 9.59. And I'm like, I'm in a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> um anywho so now we're flash forwarding to january of 1965 is the middle of the australian summer i'm so jealous that just sounds perfect like doing your new year's resolutions on the beach it really does how cool is that like you do your fireworks but it's cool to be outside because it's not you know negative 40 but marion and christine they love spending the summer on the beach and just like most teenagers at the time they're obsessed like music and surfing and boys i mean it literally it's like disney beach movie kind of thing it's johnny tsunami okay it's not about to be obviously so january 1st 1965 literally like new year's day like i was saying how i'm jealous they were like new year's resolution on the beach no but they literally did that and I guess all our Australian listeners are like, yeah, where else would you do it? That's called And New then Year's. our Australian listeners who are living in Alice Springs are like, 
Or you can do it in the desert in the middle of the summer. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I gotcha. We we also have an Arizona, but we just don't go there. It's also a lot smaller. <laughs> well, y- yeah. I had a friend who, uh, her and her husband were stationed in Alice Springs. And I really wanted to visit her. I couldn't afford it. God, I wanted to go so bad. They're in Seoul now. And I'm like, no. Once everything's over, I'm visiting you. But also part of me was like, but when we visit, if I visit and you're in Alice Springs, can we also like, this is fun. Okay, we're taking Tiger Airways. We're going to like Melbourne. We're going to Sydney. Like, it's 150 degrees here. and There's very little oxygen and water. Anyway, they're not in Alice Springs. They're on the beach. It's New Year's Day. And they're just living their teenage life. Like, earlier that day, they'd written in their diaries that, like, they'd gone out and kissed some boys at the beach. Like, snuck away from the family and their siblings. And just being 15-year-old girls. Yeah. The next day, the Smith family visited the beach um, without Christine. Like, I mean, it was a thing that, like, they would go to the beach every day. It'd be like, I don't know, if you're in the American suburbs, like, going to the neighborhood park or something. Or I guess if you live literally near the beach, just going to the beach. I don't know. I've never had that experience. But, um, yeah. So it's just a daily thing. But during this time, Marianne's mom had been admitted to the hospital for, like, some major surgery. So Helmut Jr. and Marianne, the oldest two, they were in charge of all their siblings like they're in charge of the house while mom was in the hospital on saturday january 9th christine and marianne they asked marianne's mom who was like still in the hospital they're like oh can we take the kids um like can we take everyone and go to cronula the other day like which is a beach and i guess it was like a train right away it was a little bit further out and mom was like Sure, yeah, no problem. Y'all are both 15. You're responsible. Go for it. Thanks for asking for my permission. I'm gonna chill here in the hospital. (laughs) She's like, I'm not going anywhere. Sure, go to the beach. (laughs) It's fun. Bring me back a shell, I guess. (laughs) Um, But they weren't able to actually go that day because it was raining. So they were like, oh, we'll go later. Well, later turned out to be Monday, January 11th. They went with Marianne's four youngest siblings, and so, like, the six of them, they all got on the train, they're going to Cronulla, and at about 11 a.m. they got to the beach, but it was, like, super windy, the beach was closed, and they were like, fuck. But they were like, you know what, we took the train here, it's windy as fuck, but, like, no, we're going to the beach. So they walked down to, like, the southern end, where it was, like, sheltered with rocks and stuff, so it's not just, like... Standing out on the beach with, like, hurricane-force winds. You're not trying to be, you know, like, a Weather Channel reporter reporting on a hurricane. Right. I'm standing here (laughs) alive! No. So they're like, cool. We got these rocks. We're out of the wind. We're having a fucking beach day. And also, there's other people there. I don't know if just that one section of the beach was closed and this one with the rocks isn't. Or if a lot of people were like, yeah, that's cool. We're going to the beach, though. Probably the latter. Probably. So they get to the beach, and Wolfgang, who's eight, he's like, I want to swim. And Marianne's like, 
it's really windy, you're gonna drown, so I'll go with you, we'll just stay in the shallow part of the area, away from the rocks. Like, being a good, responsible older sibling. She's like, sure, splash around with the crabs, I don't care. I'ma watch you. Right. So, Marianne and Wolfgang, they go down to the water, he's swimming, she's watching, um, then after a little bit, they come back up to the rest of them, they have a picnic, and... At some point during this, Christine deuces out and she's like, oh, I'm just going to go for like a walk by myself on the beach. You know, she went for a walk. After a little bit, she came back, but she never mentioned to any of them like where she went, or at least not to any of the kids. She might have mentioned it to Marianne, but we don't know. One of the things that did happen when she left, though, is Wolfgang also noticed this like teenage boy nearby like there's another kid on the beach um and he was like crab hunting with either a spear or a fishing knife i don't know but wolfgang he's this eight-year-old kid he knows christine go off alone he knows there's this other like weird teenage guy just like with a knife and or spear and he's like hmm that's weird and his story differs on like the description of the guy But uh, one of the things that in his description that didn't change was he was like, this teenager, he was shirtless, he had a blue towel over his shoulder, and he was wearing, like, light gray bottoms, like, light gray swim trunks. Who this kid was, we don't know. After her walk, Christine, like, came back to them, and the whole group as a whole, they'd eaten lunch, and they decided to walk further along the beach. So maybe Christine was like, oh, I'm gonna go for a walk and see if, like there's anything we should all go see or maybe i don't know she wanted to get away from her friend and her friend's siblings and be on the beach alone we've all done that we've all done the like i'm gonna pretend i'm in a music video and walk on the beach alone i'm gonna just take a break take a moment for me yeah so the whole group they start walking and about 1 p.m they're pretty near the wanda beach surf club and the little kids are like starting to complain because the it's again really windy. They're not sheltered by the rocks anymore, so the like sand is blown in their faces. Their towels are like blown away, and they're having to like run after them and catch them. So they're like, okay, we'll you know walk behind the sand dune where it's not so windy to take shelter. But once they get there, Marion and Christine are like, all right, we're gonna go back to where we were to the rocks, like get all our bags and stuff, and. Then we'll come back, and then we can all go. And Marianne had brought a radio, and she left it with the kids, so they'd, like, have music to listen to. And then Marianne and Christine started, like, walking away. But Peter, one of the siblings, he's like, y'all are going in the wrong direction. Because they weren't walking towards the rocks, back to where they were. They were basically continuing their walk. Uh Uh-huh. And he's like, where the fuck are y'all going? And Christine and Marianne, they're... They just, like, laughed him off and continued walking. Like, they're like, if y'all don't want to be in the wind, don't be in the wind. We're going to continue our walk, basically. I don't like where this is going. Uh, No. At this point, there are some reports that Wolfgang also saw the same boy from earlier that was crab hunting. Kind of just, like, walking in the same direction. Basically, following Marianne and Christine. So the Schmidt children, the younger ones, they're waiting behind the sand dune. And they're just, they continue waiting. They got there at about like one-ish. 
And it's about 5 p.m. now. Oh, my God. And they've just been waiting. And Christine and Marianne aren't back. Yeah. Oh, no. So the kids, they were like, all right, well, we can't just stay here on the beat. So they decided to go back to the rocky area to get all their bags, which included Christine and Marianne's purses. And then they got on the last train to go home how, without Christine and Marianne. How old was the oldest of the younger siblings? Um, I'm not 100% sure. I know Marianne and Helmut Jr. were like in charge. And he was younger, so maybe he's like 13 or something. Was the oldest. That's so crazy. Like, I get it. It's the 60s. Cell phones aren't a thing. You can't try to get a hold. And, and at a certain point, I guess you just leave. I don't. I mean, that seems like a decision you make as yeah. a kid. I don't know as an adult. Like, you wouldn't make that decision. But, like, if you couldn't, well, maybe if you couldn't find your friend, you would make that decision. I don't know. It's crazy. I wouldn't yeah. leave a beach if I couldn't find you. Yeah. But, again, I am imagining, I would imagine... Helmut Jr. probably made the decision because he's now the oldest, he's in charge, yeah, and he's 13, and he's with his all his younger siblings. I know Wolfgang's eight, but he's not the youngest. So he's probably like, well, what the fuck do I do? Well- I'm sure he's panicking. Probably. I'm sure he's panicking, but he knows, like, we have to get back home to our parents, and, you know, our older sister and a friend, they're gonna- they'll go home. Maybe they already did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they take the last train home. They get home around 8 p.m. And immediately they tell Christine's grandma. Because again, the Schmitz, their dad passed away and their mom's in the hospital. So they went over and were like, yo, the Christine and Marianne, they went for a walk. They didn't come back. We had to get home. So we don't know. And so they were reported missing just like 30 minutes after they got home. Which is like still like seven hours after they started their walk. Yeah. So another witness who was the last known person to see the girls alive was a man named Dennis Dostein. He was a local firefighter. He was on the beach with his young son. And he saw them walking like hurriedly. And it wasn't far from the Wanda Beach Surf Club. So it wasn't too, too long after they started their walk, just the two of them. And he said that they were, like, constantly looking back behind them, like, looking over their shoulder as they were walking, like they were being followed. Oh, my God. But Dennis, he didn't see anyone following them. But remember, Wolfgang saw that teenager for, that was crab hunting from before. Yeah. That looked like he might be following them. I don't know. It also could have been that Marianne and Christine were looking over their shoulders and, like, walking quickly because they wanted to make sure that none of the siblings, none of the kids were following them. Yep. So they could, like, I don't know, real talk or something. Yeah. Have big kid time. But Dennis was the last person to ever see them alive. So the next afternoon, a 17-year-old guy named Peter Smith is at the beach with his nephews um, they're like young. He's basically doing the exact same thing that Christine and Marianne were doing, where he's like, Yeah, I'll take the younger family members and stuff to the beach and stuff. Totally. He's walking along Wanda Beach, which is where they are, and he bought something kind of in like the sand dunes or the sand hills. And he's like, Huh, what's that? Because at first, he thinks he's seeing a mannequin. 
No. It's not a mannequin. Pretty soon, though, he realizes that he just discovered a body. And he's, like, panicking. So he takes his young nephews. He's like, nope, nope, nope. You're not going to see what I just saw. And he ran with them towards the Wanda Beach Surf Club. Again, a place not that far from where the girls started their walk. Right. It's not that far from where their bodies are found. Oh, my God. When they started the walk? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how far. It may have been, like, a couple hundred yards or meters. But it was, like, the main... It wasn't far. Right. It was the main building. It was the building. Yeah. Once he got to the surf club, he called the police and told them that he'd found a body on the beach. Once the police got there, they started, like... Removing sand from the young female victim they found. And as they were basically digging her up, they realized, oh, there's two bodies. Yeah. I knew that was coming. Marianne was found lying on her right side with her left leg bent. And Christine was face down with her head, like, against uh, Marianne's foot. Both of them had scratch marks on their faces. And there was about a hundred and... 12 foot or 34 meter long drag mark that led to the scene. So police were pretty sure that Christine had fled probably while she was dying only to get caught, incapacitated, and dragged back to where Marianne was laying dead. Oh my god. They did a huge search of the area to find the murder weapons, which they were looking for some kind of long knife and some sort of, like, blunt instrument, but they never found either of these. And the investigation kicked into, like, high gear. They sifted through, like, literally tons, like, unit of measurement tons of sand, and they found various items, um, including a bloodstained knife blade, but they weren't able to actually link it to the murders. It was a different knife blade. Someone else's bloodstained knife blade. Oh my god. Which, if it's like a crab hunting area, oh, you know, from the dude earlier, maybe, you know, three months ago, someone been crab hunting, cut themselves, and left their knife when they went to, like, go get their hand fixed. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I Speculation. Was, I was definitely thinking not that, and I realized what I was thinking was kind of stupid, but I was like, oh, yeah, for, like, when they stab the crabs, and it's crab blood. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. If crab blood is red, Does, do crabs and it's have 1960s, I mean, horseshoe crabs have blood, and their blood is blue. Fun fact. So, yeah, crabs have blood, and all animals have blood. That's how oxygen's delivered to all parts of the body. I guess it was something about the exoskeleton that was making me think maybe they didn't, but you're right. So, like, even, like, seahorses have blood? Yeah. It just might not be red. It depends on what kind of, like, hemoglobin proteins they have, which are the things that turn red when oxygenated in blood. You're a nerd. But thank you for the educational information. You're welcome. See, this is the actual, like, proper time for the National Geographic music. Well, and honestly, when you first said, like, oh my gosh, there was another bloody knife, but then you just take one step back and think about it, it's not the craziest thing to find. Like, it's really not. It's a beach. Yeah. Yeah. Think about someone, I don't know, grilling out and accidentally cut themselves. There are so many instances when you could accidentally cut yourself and you throw the knife down and go, and then 
erosion and life happens and stuff and the knife breaks and so it's just the blade. Like, it just, you know? Yeah. So, an autopsy was performed on them and Christine had a blood alcohol level of 0.015. What? Which is super fucking low because 0.08 is like you can't drive in the US and that's usually like for me I think that would be two or three drinks. So this is like a half a drink. It's almost like maybe if she'd had one beer a few hours ago or like some of a beer. But it okay. but there's alcohol in her system. Yeah. And it wasn't found in Marianne's body. Interesting. And also, Christine had consumed food. They found cabbage and celery, which was possibly a Chico roll. I don't know what that is. Australian listeners are probably like, oh, Chico roll. It has cabbage and celery in it, I guess. Um, But that wasn't in, like, none of them had that. When they had their, like, picnic together, no one had brought cabbage or celery. So, most likely, when she'd gone on her, like, walk alone, she'd had maybe had something to drink, had a small drink, and also a Chico roll. I forgot about her alone walk. hmm And, I mean, maybe it literally was like, I'm gonna go, uh, like, I'm tired of, like, being everyone, I'm going to, like, the surf club, and I'm gonna get myself, like, a snack while they eat lunch. Yeah. I don't know. Or maybe she was like, ugh, I hate this picnic food. I'm gonna go get that. Or maybe she met someone. There's a lot of situations that could be true. Christine's skull had been fractured by a blow to the back of her head, and she'd then been stabbed about 14 times. Marianne, she had had her throat cut so deeply that she'd almost been decapitated. And she'd also been stabbed multiple times. One of my sources said six, one said 25 to 30. For both girls, their underwear had been cut, and there had been attempts made to rape both of them. And semen was found on both of them, but their autopsy did show that their hymens were still intact, so they weren't penetrated during their rape. The four younger Schmidt children, they were questioned very extensively about, like, everything that happened when they visited the beach that day. And this was when Wolfgang told the investigators about this teenage boy. And Peter told the police about, you know, the girls going the wrong way. Yeah. They said they were going to go get their purses. They walked the other way. This is how they're building their case. Which is why, like, we don't know what where Christine went uh, when she went on her walk alone. I My mind would be blown if Marianne did not know. Right. Maybe when she went on her walk alone, she met someone and she was like, hey, before we leave, I want to introduce you to my friend. Yeah. That's something that's such an easy explanation why they're like, to the younger siblings, they're like, oh, we're going to go get our purses and then we'll get out of here. And they're going to take mm-hmm. a detour to go meet this person. In my head, I'm just picturing exactly. the crab guy, but. Yeah. Well, so are, uh, so are the police. Because even though his description of this, like, crab hunting teenage boy uh, changed a little bit, that was the best lead they had. But this description of this guy who's on an Australian beach shirtless with a towel and gray swim trunks, that could be anyone. (laughs) That's nothing to go off of. That was nothing actually describing him. Yeah. 
And so this boy in question would never be identified. Wait, ever? No. Law enforcement also did have another lead. There had been a man they'd heard of in the previous days who'd been, like, sexually harassing girls on the beach. And a lifeguard at the Wanda Beach confirmed, like, oh, yeah, there was this guy. He was, like, sexually harassing girls. And I escorted him, like, I physically escorted him from the beach. But that man was also never identified. Great. All these people who exist and then don't. So... There was an offer made of 10,000 Australian pounds, which was later turned to 20,000 Australian dollars when they changed their currency, for any information that could help break this case open. But despite interviewing over 7,000 different people oh my God. in relation to these murders, which at this point it made it the largest investigation in Australian history, yeah, the case went cold. And the killer was never identified. But there are some suspects. Three of them. Three main ones, at least. So the first suspect I'm going to go into is Alan Bassett. A man who was a former detective who investigated the murders, Sec Johnson. In 1975, so ten years later, he was given a painting by Alan Bassett. Alan had been jailed, like he was in jail for murdering a 19-year-old woman named Carolyn Orphan in June of 1966, so just a year and a half after the Wanda Beach murders. And Carolyn was attacked, raped, strangled, and then had her skull crushed in with a rock. So Alan, he was sent to prison for life, and he wound up serving 29 years before being released in 95. But this painting that he made, he titled it A Bloody Awful Thing, and it showed this abstract landscape, and Johnson believed that this painting showed blood trails, a broken knife blade, and the body of a victim, and he became convinced that Alan Bassett was the Wanda Beach killer, and this painting was the crime scene. But this is all based on just his opinion of the painting. Yeah. I mean, he was convinced that this painting, it showed a scene that only the killer would have known. And it also apparently had clues to two other unsolved murders. Oh. But most other detectives were very skeptical about this. Because even the fact of being like, you, oh, look, you can see the knife blade, the, the blood trails. Like, it was kind of an up for interpretation kind of thing. Yeah, but also there's jailhouse gossip. What if the killer actually is in jail from some other crime and there was gossip and this dude was influenced to do a painting? Like, Or what if it's just a really abstract landscape? When you say abstract, that makes it hard to identify reality because reality is not present in abstract. I mean, like, mm -hmm. it is. It's obviously an abstraction of something. And so there could be these pieces in there, but no offense but, to this detective. He's not an art historian. And unless he brought an art historian in to analyze it, it's like... I mean, also, it's kind of like the idea of trying to discover a person's identity in a Picasso painting. It's like, yeah, that's based on a person. You're not going to find that person. You're not going to be able to identify it. So like, yeah, this abstract painting of a landscape... It might be 
based on an actual landscape, but to say, like, it's specifically this murder one, that's a stretch. It's a stretch, and also, it's just a painting by a dude in prison, and, I mean, he did murder someone, so he has ideas. He could have, like, you can literally say it's a coincidence that there are similarities. He could have just made it all up in his head from watching the news. And because he is a murderer, he would be like, well, if it were me, this is how I would do it. And here's the scene I'm going to paint. And I bet you could draw Mm -hmm. enough similarities from that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with the other detectives. I don't think that's anything you can, like, you, you maybe, like, keep an eye on this guy, but that's not enough to do anything. No. Another suspect that this one wasn't really well publicized until 1998 is Derek Percy. And he had been in prison since 1969, so four years after the Wanda Beach murders, for the murder of a child on a beach in Victoria. (laughs) Percy was considered way too dangerous to be released and is the prime suspect in a number of other murders in, like, the Melbourne and Sydney areas. In 2013, he died from cancer. And up until that point and everything, he was considered a leading suspect in Marianne and Christine's murders. Really, And he can be linked to the location on the date of the murders, like, enough so that they're like, yes... He was more or less in that area. Like, he could have been there. That's the only link they had. I hate it because it's like that could be enough, but could also just be a coincidence. Mm -hmm. And they were hoping, like, police were really hoping he would make confessions on his deathbed when he was dying of cancer. But he never did. You know what I think one of my least favorite words is coincidence. Because everything around coincidence sucks. Yeah. It really does. Another suspect, and this is one that has a lot more renewed interest even now. Like, I've seen news articles and stuff from this year talking about it. And that's Christopher Wilder. Now, about two years before the Wanda Beach murders, Christopher had been convicted of gang raping someone on a beach in Sydney And that was the first thing that led them to include him in, like, the police's suspect pool. Because basically, at that point, they're like, anyone who's done violent or sexual acts on a beach in the Sydney area, like, we're going to include them on our suspect list. Totally. Well, Christopher Wilder also got another name in the U.S. a couple years later, and he became known as the Beauty Queen Killer. In the U.S., he abducted and raped at least 12 women and murdered at least nine of them during this, like, six-week-long cross-country murder spree in early 1984. Oh, my God. Yeah. How have I never heard of this guy? Uh, same. I had never heard of him either, and I'm like, um, excuse me? The beauty queen killer. I think it is a case one of us needs to do in an upcoming episode. I agree. So, Christopher Wilder, he lived in, like, he was born in Australia, and he lived there until 1969, so four years after the Wanda Beach murders happened. And at the time of the murders, he was living in Sydney's Northern Beaches area, so very close to 
where Christine and Marianne were murdered. And in 1982, he'd already moved to the U.S., but he'd come back to Australia to visit his parents. He was charged with sexual offenses against two 15-year-old girls who he had, like, forced to pose nude. But when they charged him, he fled back to the U.S. And then in 1984, that was when he committed his, like, murder spree in the U.S. But he accidentally killed himself in a, like, police fight, in a struggle with police in New Hampshire in April of 1984. So there's a lot of different things and a lot of different ideas that people have gone into that they think he was the killer. He may have been the killer. He may have been the teenage boy. The teenage boy may have been another person who killed them or may have been completely not involved in any way. And there's no way we're going to know any of that. There really is no way. I mean, Christopher Wilder died... 36 years ago. Yeah. We're not getting anything from him. So to this day, the murders of Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sherrock remain unsolved. And that is the case of the Wanda Beach murders. That one's rough. Also, why? Why did we both pick cases that are unsolved from Australia? We always do this. Again, I know our listeners are like... Oh, they're saying it again. How they always pick cases that are way too similar, more so than the topic. But we do. I don't get it. Because it's not like with a topic like beach murders that it would lead you to think like, oh, well, obviously they're going to be kind of similar in these ways. Like, no, no, there's beaches outside of Australia. Also. There's also beach murders that are solved. And also ones that are not just from the middle of the 20th century. Also, the fact that both of ours are cases with so many mysteries and questions. So many things Mm -hmm. that there are no answers to. So many things that may be a huge part of the case, maybe that have literally nothing to do with it. Yeah. Did Christine meet anyone on her walk and they were the person who wound up murdering them? Or did she literally just go on a walk? I know. Was this boy who was hunting crabs near them a killer? Or was it just some guy hunting crabs? That just happened to look like he was following them, but he was actually going to a better crab area. Or maybe he was walking to the beach club house thing. Yeah. Surf club. Wow, man. What an episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this episode was a lot. It was not what I expected when I originally picked a beach murders as the topic but that's how it always works right it really is like oftentimes at least for me when i pick topics i'll definitely usually have a case built in my mind unless i already have one a specific case picked out i'll have an idea of kind of what i was i'm thinking of um like i know for this one my idea was like oh maybe some kind of like daytona spring break serial killer something like that And no, that is not the direction it took. No. At all. For either of us. No. Also, if there was a spring break killer, number one, there's a movie about that. It's called, like, Spring Break. And um, I've never seen it. But also, I feel like we'd know about that. Oh, I do not think we would. I think there are so many, like, 
the fact that we literally about three minutes ago learned about the beauty queen killer okay fair fair maybe that happened on a beach in spring break i don't know we will we will know soon and then we will tell y'all about it yeah i think ty's gonna do that case in a future episode here before too long uh yeah i I see that happening (laughs) well if you enjoyed how this episode came together and the crazy turns and the crazy similarities that always seem to happen and you like listening to us make sure you hop on over to apple Podcasts and please leave us a five-star review let us know what you think tell us what your favorite parts are tell us what you want to hear we so much appreciate seeing your reviews thank you so much to those of y'all who have left one Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, You can also get fun updates from us on our Patreon. I feel like we give some personal updates and stuff in our murder minis, similarly to how we do in the cases. Totally. We're a bottle of wine in, so (laughs) sometimes we go in. Sometimes it's real juicy Uh, stuff. I know. Sometimes the tea hunty. It's spilling like it's the Boston Harbor. No. Um, but yeah, check us out. <laughs> Brittany's thoroughly unimpressed with that. Um, I was actually pretty but, impressed. Yeah. I just didn't have a reaction. I don't know why. Sorry. I was like, Boston Tea Party. <laughs> Haha, that was a good one. But n- none of that came across in my face. Apologies. <laughs> oh, I just got the narrowed eyes and the God fucking damn it. <laughs> but that's fine. Uh, yeah, follow us on social media. Check out our Patreon. Do do all the things. This is why I don't play poker. No poker face. I mean, I just don't know how. I'm a bad bitch when it comes to blackjack. Um, that's about it. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.